Howdy, I'm Andrew, your friendly host of the award-winning Petrus Development Show, a podcast where I interview great development officers and ministry leaders about how they raise more money for their organization. Subscribe to the Petrus Development Show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Holy Donors Podcast. Join Andrew, Matt, and myself, Thaddeus, as every week we bring you inspiring stories of radical generosity that have changed the world. So, Andrew, you ready to get started? Can't wait. I can't help but remember this story of Danny's mom in prayer on her knees begging that her son be saved. Whatever he had, the doctors didn't have a cure for it. And Here she was in total desperation and devotion, praying that God would save her son. And the effect that that had on Danny for the rest of his life cannot be overstated. How many parallels there are, how many connections there are to that single moment in life. All right, gentlemen, welcome back. We're on our last episode of Danny Thomas. Just to kind of bring us back up to speed, we talked about his his early life. He was born, breached in a blizzard by a horse doctor. Just kind of a funny story to remember by that. But but it all led up to these two th- birth dates. Oh, three two, names. Two birthdays, three <laughs> names, a whole slew of things. And he's a great storyteller. So so we'll just leave it at that. And then it went on to the three pledges: the seven dollar plea, the vow, and the double down. And this all led to a dream of a hospital to serve children, children who had nowhere else to turn. That led to this fundraising effort that, Andrew, you kind of geeked out on a little bit there. and uh, Guilty. Guilty as charged. Right, right. It started with me, you, and then we. And it brings all of us up to this last episode of Danny Thomas. And I think it's going to be kind of difficult to, to finish it off because this guy did something truly, truly amazing. And we have to sum it up in one episode. So I think what we'll do is we'll talk about first the transformations that Danny had on the world and, and those around him. So he transformed entertainment really through his work with St. Jude, transformed healthcare, and through his work with ALSAC, transformed fundraising. So let's start with how Danny kind of left his mark on the entertainment world. We talked last episode about his show, Make Room for Daddy, becoming, you know, climbing to number two in the charts, uh, having a spinoff show, and really being, you know, one of the most famous TV shows as millions of Americans bought their first television set and put it in their home. Some other uh, transformations that he had on entertainment is his kids have gotten really involved and they have followed in his footsteps, not as actors, but as producers. So his son, Tony, has produced shows like Blossom, Golden Girls, Empty Nest, and movies such as Dead Poets Society. And in a way, we have Danny Thomas to thank for bringing us Betty White, who <laughs> who doesn't love Betty White, right? <laughs> So Danny was also one of the most well-known nightclub performers in the 1940s and the 50s, and he toured with the USO during World War II and the Korean War. He was alongside folks like Marlene Dietrich, Bob Hope, Dean Martin, and a whole host of other celebrities. 
And he wasn't responsible for the percentages of TVs and homes shooting up, but certainly when somebody bought their first TV in 1953 or 1956 or 1958, and they turned it on and they saw Danny Thomas there on the Danny Thomas show. And there were only three channels anyway. Yeah, they fell in love with him. And really, uh, that had to have boosted, in a way, boosted TV sales and just that adoption of television in the home. So there's no doubt that Danny had a profound effect and transformed entertainment in significant ways. You could say that arguably without Make Room for Daddy slash The Danny Thomas Show, and then all of those spinoff shows like The Andy Griffith Show, like The Dick Van Dyke Show, and and then everything that his children did in television, you're talking about a kind of fundamental aspect of American culture and self-identity for the certainly the second half of the 20th century that just would not be what it was without this personality and and everything that he affected. So that was how Danny had an effect on transforming entertainment. Through St. Jude, there's no doubt that massive transformations were made in healthcare, particularly with children, through the work of St. Jude. So in addition to transforming entertainment, St. Jude had a massive transformation on healthcare, particularly in children's healthcare, but just, I mean, in healthcare in general. One of the first ways that they really transformed health care is through their participation and their involvement in the civil rights era, right? Yeah, and let's talk about just sort of a overarching view of what's going on in that era, you know, late 50s, early 1960s. Admittedly, this is an enormous topic. I'm only going to be giving a, a thumbnail sketch at best, and I'm going to be leaving out huge portions of the story. But America's blacks had been striving for equal civil rights and political rights since the founding. Uh, but, you know, that effort entered a new era after the Civil War ended slavery. And we have the 14th and 15th Amendments establishing equal protection under the law and voting rights. Now, nevertheless, 1890 to 1945, African-Americans, they lived through this era of segregation that narrowly circumscribed their field of political and social activity and subjected them to a humiliating social etiquette on a day-to-day basis. Um, But after World War II, a renewed effort gained steam to dismantle this system of Jim Crow, scoring its first major victory in the 1954 Brown v. Board Supreme Court decision that desegregated public schools. Now, John F. Kennedy, he campaigned in 1960 on a promise to expand civil rights, but he grew disappointed with the intransigence of congressional Southern Democrats to come along once he was in office. So like so often in the American experience, it fell to individual Americans, in this case most prominently Martin Luther King Jr., and their private associations uh, here, the Christian churches and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, to affect change. So the civil rights movement in the 50s and the 60s that were early 60s that we're talking about, it was determined, it was dignified, it was peaceful, and it was provocative. It challenged injustice by flouting unjust laws, by drawing attention to unjust laws, seeking integration, uh, not a separate peace, but a combined peace. Danny Thomas is founding St. Jude Children's Research Hospital right in the middle of all of these tumultuous civil rights direct action movements 
in cities throughout the South. And you can see here how in an ancillary related way, you know, what Danny Thomas is doing is in this spirit. He's trying to build an institution that is going to treat and care for and honor the dignity of black children just the same as white children. Yeah, I mean, I love that that St. Jude's was part of that. There were two stories that I found kind of particularly impactful in what they did as well. Dr. Donald Pinkle, who was kind of the CEO of St. Jude at the time, really wanted the hospital to be integrated, but he also wanted to have an effect on the community. And so knowing that there were hundreds, if not thousands of people coming to Memphis every year, then they needed hotels. He approached the hotel workers and the hotels themselves and said, you know, because they were balking at the idea of having people of color stay in the hotel because it was still a segregated community. And he said, if you don't allow patients of color from St. Jude, we will not send any patients to you. And even went so far as to say, if you won't hire people of color to work in the hotels, then we won't send patients to you. And that had a, I mean, a profound effect on the integration of the city at the hotels and then restaurants and everywhere else. And then also another really poignant story was Dr. Rudolph Jackson. So Dr. Jackson was the first African-American doctor to work at St. Jude's, and he moved there in 1968. And when I first saw that, I thought, oh, that's a great story. And then I started thinking, wait, something else happened in 1968 (laughs) in Memphis. And this was the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., right? Yeah, April 4th, 1968. Yeah. So... Just a couple of months later, Dr. Rudolph is approached and said, we'd love for you to come work at St. Jude's. And knowing that this this is what's happening, this happened in Memphis in that time and kind of what an area it was for the civil rights movement, he really grappled with this idea of, I have a family and am I going to move there knowing that this is you know a, a potential risk? And it was the mission and the cause of St. Jude that he left Pennsylvania and moved to Memphis. And just that commitment on everybody's part to be part of St. Jude and to really have that effect on our culture, I don't think can be understated. Yeah, I agree. And then you put on top of that now the free health care for children commitment. They admit 7,500 patients annually. No patient ever receives a bill. Most patients arrive at St. Jude within 24 to 48 hours of their diagnosis of a terminal disease, uncurable disease, and the average length of stay is 24 days. And let's go back to what's the daily operating cost of St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, $2.4 million per day. Yeah, so it's hard to know the exact number of patients that have come through St. Jude, but over 300,000 patients have come through, and that's amazing. They've had that impact since 1962. Yeah, truly, truly amazing. The commitment to take on incurable diseases, which fits so well with the patronage of St. Jude Thaddeus, right? He's the patron of hopeless cases. Patients at St. Jude are referred by a physician, and nearly all, 98% is the number we got, have a disease currently under study and are eligible for a clinical trial. That means that they're, they're facing a diagnosis with a disease that does not have a ready medical cure. And go back to the story of Danny's brother, the doctors did not have a cure. They didn't know what to do for him. And his mother fell on her knees and prayed for him to be cured. Mm -hmm. So him insisting that St. Jude was a place for, quote, incurable diseases fits totally in line with his experience. Exactly. And now we think about 
Today, there are more hospitals that serve children specifically that do exclusively pediatric medicine than St. Jude Children Research Hospital in Memphis. But part of the reason why that is, is St. Jude, their commitment to sharing the research that they do free of charge to any other medical organization, medical researchers that are are focused on childhood diseases, especially headlined by Peter Doherty, who won the Nobel Prize for Medicine in 1996. Yeah, and let's listen to Nicole talk about the impact that that research has, not just on the patients that are there at St. Jude's, but around the world. Yeah, this is a great quote. It was actually Dr. DeBakey who once said, one patient saved at St. Jude means a thousand saved around the world. And that is primarily because of the research and the knowledge and the information that is learned and discovered at St. Jude, it's shared freely around the world. And that's one of the things that makes St. Jude so unique is that there is actually right now it's called the St. Jude cloud and all the information that our researchers, scientists and doctors learn gets put up into this cloud and it's accessible to any other doctor, hospital, researcher around the world who wants access to information, they have access to it for free. And that I think is one of the game changers is the fact that discoveries made in Memphis, Tennessee are being used in Bryan College Station, Texas, are being used in China, in Lebanon, around the world, because Seiju does not care who discovers the cure for cancer. They just want someone to discover it. So if information that we get leads someone else to find that cure, we want to be part of that solution. We don't want to keep it to ourselves because that's not helpful. So I love the fact that one patient saved at St. Jude means a thousand patients saved around the world. Yeah. And let's let's just not forget, they have improved the childhood cancer survival rate from 20% in 1962 to 80% today. That's just amazing to think about that it number. It flipped it on its head. I know. Absolutely. It's just, it's just amazing, amazing to think about. Mm-hmm. 20 to 80%. 20% to 80%. It's unreal. Yeah. So it's clear that St. Jude and through the, the this all started because of Danny Thomason's pledge has transformed healthcare, particularly children's healthcare in the United States and around the world. And the third area of transformation is fundraising. So we talked last episode a lot about ALSAC and the work that they've done and how innovative they've done. What started in 1951 with a benefit to raise money. I don't think that the the irony is lost on I'll see you in my dreams was the movie <laughs> that was premiering. I think that starting in 1951 and raising that $51,000 put them on a path to go from, again, me to you to we. All of us are involved in this fundraising. And let me throw in a little cute story by Danny Thomas about the 1951 fundraiser. He noted at several places that the number 51 was a significant number for him, that he had started at the 5100 Club, right? That's He was working at the 5100 Club when he made the double down and he made that enormous decision to not go the way of the safe and easy and predictable path, but to cast out into the deep, right, with St. Jude. 1951 is the big fundraiser that kicks off the fundraising effort for the hospital. And what do they raise? $51,000. And then to top it all off, St. Jude Children's Research Hospital was built adjacent to Highway 51 in Memphis, Tennessee. So there's something poetic about the fact that there's this number 51 that keeps coming up 
And it's sort of a road sign or a landmark for all these important moments in his life. Mm -hmm. So then today, ALSAC raises over $1.6 billion annually. They have over 11 million donors, and they host over 30,000 events a year, which is just unbelievable. The numbers cannot—I can't get my mind around those numbers. It's, it's crazy. And then they are constantly innovating through programs like— the Up Till Dawn, the fundraisers that are done on campus, the Promesa in Esperanza event where they partner with Univision, the Thanks in Giving, the Dream Home Giveaway, the Play Live. I mean, it's just the list on is never on ending. And on it's and crazy. ALSAC is run like a machine and is constantly pushing the boundaries to raise more money for St. Jude. So, you know, all this is amazing. I mean, mo- most of all, the number of children who are alive today that wouldn't be without St. Jude's. I mean, it's, it's all amazing. The fundraising piece, how he's changed entertainment, all of this is amazing. And I know Danny Thomas wouldn't want us to do this, but I think it is a way that we can honor him by talking about some of the things that he was honored with in his lifetime here. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I, I think this would be a good time to kind of talk about those. Mm-hmm. So he has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, which I think recognizes his talent and his uh, transformation of entertainment like yeah, we talked about exactly he was honored with the congressional gold medal by president ronald reagan in 1981 we have a clip let's listen to that here danny thomas it's my high honor to present you with the congressional gold medal and to tell you that on this day america says we love you we love you right back That's great. And he was honored by two popes, Pope Paul VI and Pope John Paul II, honored him for not just his contributions to society, but his humanitarian efforts as a practicing Catholic. So I think that those are just some of the accolades that he has earned. And, you know, at his passing in 1991, there was a a funeral that was attended by, you know, the luminaries of, of Hollywood and many of his old friends. And Bob Hope eulogized him. And he said something very poignant, quote, Danny was one of the giants of the industry, and what he did for St. Jude's will never be forgotten. I can't understand his leaving us. God must have needed some help. (laughs) Classic. All of our holy donors were connected to the organizations they support through great development officers. Do you want to learn to raise more money for your organization? Go to PetrusDevelopment.com slash education to learn about our free Petrus Academy offerings every month. See you there. Hey, Matt. Yeah. So I know a couple years ago you went through a pretty intensive weight loss program, right? I did. Yeah. So did you just wake up one day and the weight was gone? No, I put together a plan. And then I executed that plan, and I had people in place to keep me accountable. Yeah. And so I also know that you just recently successfully completed a $25 million-plus capital campaign, right? We did, yes. Yeah, same thing? You just woke up and the money was there? No, not exactly. We we did something very similar. We put together a plan, executed the plan, and we had a team around us that helped keep us accountable to that plan. And it just so happened to be it was Petrus. Yeah. So Petrus loved working with you on that project, and we work with organizations all over the place, Catholic parishes, nonprofits, campus ministries, high schools, middle schools, and that's what we do is we help to create a plan, 
execute on that plan and then keep everybody accountable moving in the right direction. So if you're listening and your organization needs to do a capital campaign, build a new building, add staff, start an endowment, go to PetrusDevelopment.com slash campaign to learn more about working with us. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. You, you know, Andrew, we've talked about what he's done in the entertainment with, with all these different pieces, the, the hospital, all of that. But the podcast that we're doing is, is called Holy Donors. The reason for it is not only the donor part, not only the gift that they've given to society and humanity, but also the holy piece of it. And so one of the questions I have for you today is, is Danny, of course, had these on his knees praying moments. But I'd really like to kind of talk a little more about what his faith meant to him. Yeah. So Danny's religious faith was no joke or public show. Mm -hmm. Uh, Terry, his daughter, said in one of the articles that she wrote about him, my father believes so strongly in the Lord Jesus that when asking the assistance of the saints, he'd, quote, go to Jesus' friends. That's what he called them. As well as to Christ's mother, the Blessed Virgin Mary. In addition to his attachment to St. Jude Thaddeus, which he talked about all the time, he also had special devotion to St. Anthony of Padua and St. Joseph, as well as St. Therese of Lisieux, who Terry was named after, as we mentioned. She said that her father also had a small splinter of the true cross in a home reliquary and would pray for long periods of time in his dressing room. Yeah, and that's great. That simple Catholic devotion to relics, to images of the saints— that's just the beginning of Danny's devotional life that you know we kind of can see on display, and that we have a great story surrounding some of that religious art that he acquired actually for his Hollywood home. In 1953, now remember, he's in the prime of his career. This is two years after the big fundraiser for St. Jude. He's in the midst of Make Room for Daddy. I mean, he's just shining brightly, right? So he's got some uh, he's got some coin to throw around on some religious art for his home. He commissioned a statue of St. Jude. I don't know about you guys, but have you guys ever commissioned a statue for your home <laughs> yet? Yeah, I have a statue of St. Andrew in my home. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Of it, sits course. At the, it sits at the dining room table at all times. So. <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> and also, he had a sculpture design and then execute a bas-relief of the Last Supper, a bas-relief sculpture of the Last Supper to hang in his dining room. Can you kind of explain to our listeners what a bas-relief is? Because I, of course, know what it is. Yeah, yeah, I mean, right. <laughs> um, you're getting ready to commission an artist to do one of those for you, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so yeah, a bas-relief is a form of sculpture that dates back to ancient times, really, where you take a slab of stone or a slab of wood and instead of carving it out into a three-dimensional object, you kind of carve into the face of the slab of stone, and then you have the three-dimensional figure sort of projecting, what, three-quarters of the way out from the surface of the stone. And so often you'll see that on the fronts of, say, altars in churches. You'll see a mm, bas-relief yeah, sculpture. Okay. okay. He doesn't just commission the sculpture of the Last Supper, he also plunks down some significant money to not, you know, this isn't out of styrofoam or balsa <laughs> wood. No, this is a single 13-foot piece of Honduran mahogany. 
That's like the size of the side of a car. Right, right. <laughs> and this is 1953. It's not like he's jumping on Amazon and saying, oh, I think I'll order some Honduran mahogany. No, I mean, he's like sourcing <laughs> this, you know. So he said in his autobiography, I was very proud of this piece of religious art. I had it carefully lighted with a single spotlight picking up Jesus's face. So this bas-relief actually becomes kind of an occasion in Thomas's home for his non-Catholic friends to rib him about his religiosity. There's a great story about— Yeah, I love this. Well, Thomas had already endured years of Bob Hope kidding him that he was such a good Catholic, his car had stained glass windows, right? <laughs> but shortly after the sculpture's installation, Danny showed it to a number of his friends at a dinner party. And he gathered them around, and they're all looking at it, and he says, Look at that light on Jesus' face. It's so realistic. You can just about see him talking. I wonder what he's saying. And so Danny's friend, comedy writer Harry Crane, quipped, separate checks, please. So, <laughs> which is funny because his his comment was really uh, a, another rib at Danny. Danny had a reputation in Hollywood for making just that request when he was out in the town. Yeah, so I love that. I love that. I think also what's so neat about this on a on a maybe a more serious plane is that here's Danny Thomas, and it does show his real devotion to his Catholic faith. It's very common for a Catholic to have a display, a painting, maybe a plastic sculpture of the Last Supper in their home, because that's a very important moment in the liturgical year, right? The institution of the Eucharist. Yes, he dressed it up with Honduran mahogany. He commissioned a sculpture to do it, but that doesn't change the fact that he believed in what it signified. He didn't have any hesitation about continuing this beautiful Catholic practice of having religious art in the home that, you know, had been handed on to him by previous generations. And I kind of think that it shows he still, with all that prodigious wealth and fame, he still was Muziad Yakub, the son of poor Lebanese Catholics who had made good. I just There's something beautiful about that story. Yeah, and to also play on his him remembering his roots, Danny did a lot of work to fundraise, right? We've we've heard about oh, that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. clearly, but he was also a donor. Uh, I mean, financially, he supported a number of organizations and other Catholic organizations. For example, he was a big donor to the National Shrine of St. Jude. You remember mm -hmm. at Old St. Clement Church in Chicago, mm -hmm. and he supported the Claritians who they run that parish. And so he's a big supporter of those financially. And of course, in addition to fundraising for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, he was a donor. It's common knowledge that he gave at least a million dollars when it opened in 1960s, which is kind of amazing. Why did he do it? Number one, I mean, this was just part of his Catholic faith. But let's listen to this clip about Nicole talking about his devotion to the patients and the children of St. Jude. The time he spent in the hospital, you know, going to the patient beds, checking on the families and the patients taking the time to learn their names. There are times where I've heard Marlo give a talk about they'd be having dinner and he would get up to answer the phone and he would hear, oh, Johnny's not doing well or, oh, looks like Susan gets to go home. He was that invested in the individual patients. So for someone who was an international star and had a lot to do, he took that time because he truly did care about the patients. He took that time to learn everyone's names and was very concerned and involved with what was happening. And I think that's the one thing that I thought was pretty interesting was 
how committed he was to the cause to the point where learning people's names. Mm. Very touching. Wow. Yeah. So Danny is buried on the grounds of St. Jude Hospital, and there is a chapel there for families to pray in, to ask for help. And he had a great line at the opening in 1962 where he said, quote, this is the greatest day of my life. If I should die this minute, I would know why I was born. I want to talk a little bit just as we close here, as we come to the finale of this season and this last episode, I'd love to just sort of go back and reflect on where this all started, because we've kind of talked a little bit and we've talked a lot of bit about his crazy you know, birth and this mm-hmm. you know, opening story to his life and, and everything else. But I can't help but remember just this story of Danny's mom in prayer on her knees begging that her son be saved. And this, whatever he had, the doctors didn't have a cure for it. And here she was in total desperation and devotion, praying that God would would save her son. And the effect that that had on Danny for the rest of his life, I mean, it cannot be overstated. How many parallels there are, how many connections there are to that single moment in life. And not just her devotion, but then her saying, I will beg pennies door to door. Her being poor, them being, like we talked about, almost kind of living this gypsy lifestyle, and yet she was willing to fulfill that pledge and go door to door for a year and ask for pennies that she could then take and give to the church. Yeah, I I think that we have to start with the fact that his mom's faith certainly motivated him to practice his faith as a young man, you know, and Mm -hmm. the fact that he never gave up on attending mass. He came to the church. He leaned on his faith at the most desperate times of his life. Mm -hmm. That's where he got the inspiration. That's where he got the plan of God for his life. And look at what an extraordinary, and remember his Lebanese name was Muziad, extraordinary one. Mm -hmm. I think he fulfilled what his father said, that he would be this extraordinary one. You know, as a father of young children, and we all are fathers of young children, you know, this this thought of his mother and this image on Danny Thomas that has kind of been burned into his memory of faithfulness, of, of this true dedication to God, to Christ, to looking outside of yourself for help. Mm-hmm. that we aren't alone in this situation and how it left this indelible mark. It kind of makes me look retrospectively as a father of what my actions and what I do day to day can make a lasting impact oh. on my own kids of what route and what, what am I doing in order to pass along this great faith mm-hmm. to the kids. And I think, I think his mom was, was just such a faith-filled woman that she did amazing things just by these small acts of faith. And granted, the small acts of going down to your knees and praying, that was a small act, but the miracle that came from it of saving his brother was a major act from that. So it kind of helps me look back and think, what what did Christ call us to do? And I think there's there's a scripture here that points to the exact moment of what we should do and maybe what Danny Thomas, through this example of his mom, took into his life, and that's this. O blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is amazing, and it's a true testament to the, while St. Jude isn't recognized as a traditional shrine, it is a memorial, and it is a way to honor St. Jude Thaddeus in a way that I can't imagine anything else could have done a better job. And I think that's what Danny was going for. I mean, I think when he had that dream, you know, we call it a dream. Other people might call it a vision, but it was certainly inspired words of God and inspired words of Christ saying, this is this is the shrine that St. Jude deserves. And just to kind of tie it all back together, back to that moment when he was a young child and his mom, I never went before one of those benefit audiences that I didn't think about my mother going door to door begging pennies. For I, in my own way, was doing the same thing for the same reason. I don't think that he was doing this for the glory of Danny Thomas. You know, he's a holy donor. And while we don't have a definition of what a holy donor is, there's a level of humility that's understood in that. And the fact that he was able and willing to put himself in that position over and over again throughout his entire life where he was asking not for his own glory. It's not called the Danny Thomas Children's Research Hospital. It's the St. Jude Research Hospital because that is where he wanted people to remember and he wanted that focus to be on is to the work and the salvation that comes through devotion and through faith and through belief. And so I think that you know, I couldn't think of a better way that he fulfilled that pledge, those three pledges. And just the testament of his work to that, I think, will live for a long, long time. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Holy Donors, brought to you by Petrus Development in cooperation with Red Sea Catholic Radio. Theme music by Tommy Kibb, Third Top Productions. Graphics by 86 Creative. If you like us, leave us a review, share us with your friends, and check us out at holydonors.com and on Instagram. Holy Donors, bringing you inspiring stories of radical generosity that have changed the world. If you're interested in hearing more stories about women in philanthropy, both as fundraisers and donors, check out our new Women in Philanthropy podcast, hosted by Sarah and Tara. New episodes will be posted monthly. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, I need to up my joke game. <laughs> yeah, <you> too. <laughs> knock, knock. Who's there? Who's there? The KGB. The KGB. We will ask the questions. <laughs> For my partners, Andrew Robeson. Oh my gosh. <laughs> For my partners. You're fired. <laughs> <laughs>